0: CBS presents this program in color. Last week, as you recall, we left the Jupiter 2 hurtling through the void of outer space. Little did our contented space pioneers realize that somewhere out in the blackness, an incredible ghost planet was even now seeking to lure them into its sinister clutches.
1: Your planet?
2: More likely an unfamiliar asteroid. Maybe I can get a fix on it.
3: Jupiter 2? Jupiter 2? This is your space controller. Please prepare for entry into our atmosphere. Your compass heading should now be 8-5. Repeat 8-5. Please conform all instruments to requested heading.
2: This is Jupiter 2. Instructions received. Who are you, and what's your astral number?
1: Don't ask foolish questions, my boy. Like everyone else who's ever been lost, we have been going around in circles, and now we've returned to home peace, the planet Earth, and there it is. Can't be. I suppose you think it's Alpha Centauri.
2: What do you think you're doing?
1: Conforming our instruments to the requested heading, one twenty warning warning periodicity
0: of signal indicates flight path of space vehicle is on collision course with zone of high intensity particulate radiation and immediate evasive action dr smith
2: look we're heading into a radiation belt
4: The Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 32nd broadcast episode of Lost in Space, titled The Ghost Planet. And Kurt, I know how much you love a good spook show, but you may find there are more ghosts in the title of this episode than in the tale itself.
5: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a good title, so I'm there for that. What do they call that, a false leader? <laughs> so... Yeah.
4: Well, a few production notes before we begin with a story. 60-year-old series top writer Peter Packer is back with his 10th script for Lost in Space and his second for Season 2. The British-born writer who just helped the Robinsons blast off into space boldly goes back to a concept he'd used in Season 1 with the derelict, the discovery of a strange new world with even stranger forms of alien life. Even though the concept is familiar, The season two take is fresh. Out is the black-and-white film noir aesthetic of the derelict that's so 1965. And in is the colorful pop art vibe that's so 1966. Oh, joy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this story certainly has more humor than the derelict, but there are still some moments of mystery, danger, and wonder. What's all but missing in this tale are the ghosts, And that's because CBS was concerned, as always, with unduly scaring the kids. Originally, Packer's script heavily featured the hall of mummified remains of past visitors to the alien planet, which were described in the script as greenish, ghoulish figures moaning over their sad fate. The hall of figures remained, but only as a chamber of lifeless cobweb-covered statues that appear to be more recycled props from other Fox movie productions. Atmospheric, but hardly terrifying. Still, many of the tropes Packer packs into the ghost planet will be reimagined in later episodes
5: of Lost in Space. So in that respect, it's a template for what's to come. You probably heard of that science fiction premise where the guy goes back in time to World War I mm. so that he can shoot Corporal Hitler before he becomes dictator of World War Two, oh. Or where some, some other guy goes back to the Civil War in order to shoot John Wilkes Booth before he can assassinate Lincoln. That whole premise always fascinated me. But to be honest, if I could go back in time and kill just one person for the overall benefit of mankind – I'd want to go back to the 1960s. Ah, let me guess. You're going to shoot Oswald to save Kennedy. Oh, heck no. Forget the politicians. I'd want to shoot that censor at CBS because that bastard deserves to die. He's always screwing up our lost in space. (laughs) Oh, man.
4: Uh, uh, That's funny. Well, 59-year-old veteran lost in space director Nathan Jurin was also last on board for Blast Off into Space. This production involved using more than the usual number of set locations, including part of the full-size Jupiter two exterior prop. However, Jurin, with the help of cinematographer Frank G. Carson, efficiently worked through the challenges and managed to shoot this episode in six and a quarter days, from the 11th through the 19th of July, 1966, and that also included pickup shots still needed for blast off into space. Productivity like that went over well with Irwin Allen. One of Carson's effective innovations for this shoot was a subtle rocking motion during the scenes filmed inside the Jupiter II while it was in space. This simple touch subconsciously added to a feeling of motion
5: for those shots. Yeah, he not only had the camera swaying back and forth, He had everyone rocking left and right in unison with the camera instead of, you know, just a kind of chaotic go in all different directions like they used to. So that really helped a lot. Mm -hmm. It kind of makes your stomach sink, you know?
4: Oh, yeah. They worked that out well. It was well coordinated. Yeah, it's a great effect. It really is. Well, also worthy of praise for this episode is the art direction by Bob Kinoshita and Jack Martin Smith, as well as the creative costume designs from Paul Zastopnevich. Those elements combined with some more stunning special effect shots are what make this episode a real standout for the series. This episode aired on Wednesday night, September 28, 1966, and unsurprisingly, it got a summer repeat on May 17, 1967. All of our regular characters are featured, and guest stars included actress Sue England, who provided the voice of the robotic Space Control Officer Grade 03. England was an accomplished actress and voice artist in film and TV, with over 50 credits from the 40s through the 70s. Her voice talents were also used in one episode of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and later in the Series 3 Lost in Space episode, The Deadliest of the Species, where she once again portrayed an evil
5: female robot. You know, I could have sworn I recognized her voice from some porn commercials, but, you know, that would have been some 20 years later, so I'm sure I'm mistaken. Then again, you'd be surprised about the age and looks of some of these really attractive-sounding voice talents. Have you ever seen a photo of Terry Gross from Fresh Air? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, if you haven't, don't. It will completely ruin that program for you forever. (sighs) (laughs) Of course, she's probably says the same thing about me. If I had an attractive voice, but still. Oh, my gosh. Let's just say she's she's aptly named, okay? Just take it from me.
4: (laughs) Oh, the pain. Well, voicing the supreme leader and cybernetic brain is actor Michael Fox. From the early 50s to well into the 90s, he amassed over 200 acting and voiceover credits. Irwin would use him in an on-screen role for the first Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and another voice part in the Season 2 Lost in Space episode, Cave of the Wizards. In a bit of Town trivia, Michael Fox was also known as the reason Back to the Future star Michael J. Fox added the initial J to his screen credits, because the Screen Actors Guild only allows one person of each name to be registered with the union. Interestingly, on each occasion that both England and Fox worked for Irwin Allen, they did so uncredited just like Dick Tufeld and Bob May. Hmm. Also uncredited playing a cyborg was our old unsung friend and veteran stunt actor
5: Dawson Palmer. Oh, I wonder uh, which color he played. I bet he was the blue. There was something familiar about the way he lifted those breakfast lids.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there was a little more spring in his shuffle than the others. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh. Well, with that, let's get on with the story. The Act 1 teaser starts out with the narrator warning us that our space pioneers were unaware that they were being lured into the clutches of a sinister ghost planet. That's because, up on the flight deck, Dr. Smith is daydreaming as the robot sings, accompanied by Will on the guitar. Now, neath the Silver
0: Moon Ocean.
4: You know, I sure am glad they managed to save that guitar from the junk
5: pile. <laughs> You never can keep track of all the things you accumulate in space, and that guitar is just one of them.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kurt, you mentioned last time that the robot's version of Santa Lucia sounded a little silkier than his usual speaking voice. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, that's because normally, whenever the robot sings, it's Bob May's voice you're hearing. Bill Mooney was quoted as saying that Bob was a really good singer, so they usually used him instead of Dick Tufeld which Bob was always very proud of. Uh-huh.
5: Okay, well, you know, that I, I can accept that. That's that's kind of cool.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get to hear a little more of Bob May's voice in this episode, but I'll save that for later.
0: Santa Lucia, Santa!
4: Well, a precipitous end to B9's concert irritates the dozing doctor and leads to a comical exchange where Smith... Who's had his fill of the robot's sentimental nonsense? Orders will to erase the bubble-headed booby's memory banks and leave nothing but facts, figures, and a capacity for strict obedience. Have a heart, Doctor Smith. It's that sentimental stuff that makes the robot one of the family.
5: Your family, my boy, not mine. This atopated armor bear is no kin of mine.
0: Correction. I know you like a big brother.
5: Do you indeed?
0: Example. Who chickens out when all hands are needed. Example, who sneaks food when all personnel are on short rations. Example who?
4: Before he can complete the list of charges, Smith switches off the robot's voice processor,
5: and with a scowl adds, You're quite right, Will. Many of his memory banks do appear to be in a sorry state indeed, especially his memory for facts. Go through them carefully and erase all references to me. I want no part of this dehumanized lie dispenser and get rid of his sentimental twaddle at the same time.
4: (laughs) We'll box at Dr. Smith's instructions, but just then... A blip on the ship's radar detects an unknown spatial body, followed by a strange, sultry-sounding space controller on the radio who directs the Jupiter-2 to change heading and prepare to enter her planet's atmosphere.
5: Hmm... They cut away to the radar screen there, but they never show the object on the screen anymore. Apparently they got fed up with us laughing about it all the time, (laughs) the three bars (laughs) out bit. So now they just show the scan arm spinning around an empty field. I guess that's our punishment for too much teasing or something. I guess so. Yeah, that is
4: funny. They've changed uh, graphics, haven't they?
5: (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll never see anything on that radar screen again. It'll always be blank. (laughs) You know, you have to ask yourself, how hard could it have been for them to have done, you know, a couple of cutaways with just different objects in different places of the radar screen? I mean, I get it, you know. If it's always three bars out, people start to recognize it. But shoot a cutaway that's got like, you know, two bars out, one bar out, four (laughs) bars out. Different locations. I mean, how hard could that be? (laughs) Man.
4: (laughs) That's true. Well, it's a confusing development to everyone except Dr. Smith who's convinced that, like everyone else who's ever been lost, they've been going around in circles. And now they've returned to home base, the planet Earth. Sure enough, the camera cuts to a shot through the main viewport, where we're shown a small blue planet getting ominously nearer. But despite Will's objection that it can't be Earth, Dr. Smith's convinced and blindly follows the silky voice's directions, Conforming the astrogator's compass heading to 085 as instructed. Then we're shown the Jupiter 2 making a gentle turn towards the little blue planet. But just then, the robot excitedly warns their new course has the Jupiter 2 heading directly toward a deadly zone of high intensity particulate radiation. Uh oh, well, there's no time to avoid the danger. And next, we're shown an exterior shot of the Jupiter 2 being wildly buffeted as it passes through the eerie blue waves of that radiation field. Before we go to opening credits, we cut back inside the ship, where thankfully, John and the Major have arrived on the flight deck and struggle to regain control of the Jupiter 2 as their systems, including the robot, are overloaded by powerful energy surges. And once again, everything seems to erupt. With showers of sparks and flash powder explosions. Oh dear. You know, Kurt, they really need to put a password protection
5: on that astrogator because every time Smith touches it, disaster soon follows. Or maybe they could use like a super strong reverse polarity magnet to keep Smith's magnetic ring and the dirty little hand that holds it away at a safe distance. (laughs) Did you notice the flash powder shoulder pads that the robot was wearing during his pyrotech shots? Those are pretty cool. That is, (laughs)
4: yeah. Yeah, that is fun. The robot really gets into the act though, doesn't he? (laughs) Yeah, He's rocking and rolling with everybody else. Definitely. And I did like those special effect shots of the radiation belt. I think it was basically plastic sheeting, but it was very effective. I thought.
5: Well, they were actually strips. They were plastic strips, you know, and they were lightly being blown with a fan and filmed using a blue filter. They show it at a distance and they slowly zoom in on it, providing the illusion that it's approaching. And you could see through it at the planet behind it yeah, as the planet gets closer and closer. And that, along with the. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that sound effect of the scary music is a cheap but very dramatic special effect. Oh, it really works good. I, I liked it a lot. You know,
4: Blowing in the solar wind, I guess. Exactly. Well, with the ship out of control outside and burning up inside, our castaways may only have a ghost of a chance for survival. So hold on tight until we get back from this break, folks, to see what happens next. This is filmmaker and loss of space prop builder, Bill Hedges, and you're listening to Alpha Control Podcast. When we return from the break, our space pioneer's tiny ship is still being battered by the severe turbulence in that icy blue radiation zone. Inside the ship... Dr. Smith and Will are trying to put out the fires, while Major West and John heroically fight to retake command of their
5: flailing spaceship. Yeah, Will Will gets to spray those bottomless fire extinguishers in every direction, including at the airlock where there is absolutely no flames at all. <laughs> he must have loved that job. He tries to calm Smith down by explaining... It's just St. Elmo's fire, and the temperature is only one million degrees K. That doesn't help Smith at all. Maybe because Zach does some quick conversion and realizes that 1 million K is about 180 times hotter than the surface of the sun, (laughs) which can melt the whole like butter, remember? I remember. It really does. It really comes out to 180 times hotter than the surface of the sun. I don't think so. No, that's not saying no spot. That's
4: funny. Yeah, we're getting some more of that uh, gee whiz science talk, aren't we? <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, amid the chaos, Don takes time to interrogate the cowardly conniver about just how they got off course and into this mess. Even though Will's certain that it wasn't Earth, he backs up Smith's story about a charming-voiced space controller. Dad thinks they've both got a touch of space rapture, but before he can say more, the Jupiter 2, still pulsating with cosmic energy... miraculously emerges from the radiation field and continues coursing towards the strange new planet below. With calm finally restored, an overjoyed Dr. Smith, despite all logic and evidence to the contrary, remains convinced that home sweet home is dead ahead. But the deluded doctor is clearly in the minority and Professor Robinson orders Don to fire the main thrusters and get them out of there. Unfortunately, the castaways quickly discover they're caught in a magnetized field and being pulled relentlessly down to that strange planet. Even after trying auxiliary power, it's clear that someone or something has control of their ship. Uh Uh-oh. Wearing a grave expression, John calls Maureen on the intercom, telling her and the girls to strap into their space couches for a potential landing. Then he grimly orders Will and the Doctor, below to do the same. Unmoved by Professor Robinson's air of caution, Smith replies, With pleasure.
5: Despite all your misgivings, I have every reason to believe we are approaching familiar territory. Ah, very familiar.
4: Turning to Will, Smith adds,
5: You come along with me, my boy? When we land, I intend to let you help me write my memoirs. I
4: can't tell Whoppers as good as you can, Dr. Smith. Indeed. Come along. With the boys gone, John and the Major continue firing thrusters, trying to escape the grip of that ghost planet. it's no use. For better or worse, it appears our castaways are headed for an unscheduled detour on their journey to Alderaan. Uh, I mean,
5: Alpha Centauri. (laughs) Did that scene seem familiar to you, Kurt? You know, the more I see of Lost in Space, the less I think George Lucas created anything on his own. Mm. It's almost like his entire formula for success was to combine Flash Gordon with Lost in Space and voila, Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Just make sure you limit the campiness of Dr. Smith and his C-3PO robot suit and otherwise keep it serious. (laughs) It worked beautifully.
4: It sure did. And he practically stole lines from Dr. Smith with C-3PO. So it is funny. I mean, Mm. it is so striking when you watch that scene. You could just see the Death Star approaching. I mean, it's it's almost frame for frame. It's amazing. Paint the planet black and
5: you got it, you know?
4: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, Kurt, I am going to wave a little continuity BS flag here before we move on. You know, I know Smith wants to get back to Earth and all. He's been fixated on that for the last (laughs) 31 episodes. But why? Why would Smith be excited to land right back in the middle of
5: Alpha Control? The scene of the crime, yeah.
4: Yeah! Wouldn't the first thing they do is clap him
5: in irons and haul him off to Leavenworth for treason and attempted murder? Well, you would hope so, but, you know, if the government is anywhere near as incompetent in the lost in space universe as it is in real life, I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> uh, this they'll s- probably hold a surprise party for him. <laughs>
4: Uh, oh, boy. Well, as the family gets strapped in for touchdown, the soothing voice of the space controller interrupts, announcing over the receiver that their approach pattern for landing on pad 115 is being telemetrically controlled. Professor Robinson repeatedly attempts to contact the space controller, but frustratingly, the buttery voice on the radio is all-transmit and no-receive.
3: Space Control extends its personal welcome to all voyagers on Jupiter 2 and regrets any inconvenience you may have been caused in penetrating our radiation belt. You are now entering our atmosphere."
4: Which despite her reassuring tone caused me to experience a real feeling of dread as the ship entered the planet's atmosphere.
3: "...Jupiter 2, we are taking over your controls. We are landing your ship for you."
4: Unable to break free, The men are now resigned to little more than passengers as the Jupiter is landed by remote control. Oh dear. Well, next the camera cuts to a beautiful special effects sequence realized by LB Abbott and his crew, which featured the Jupiter 2 making a rare controlled gear down night landing on the ghost planet. It's a wonder to behold. So wonderful, you guessed it, that shot would be recycled again later in the Season 3 episodes of Visit to a Hostile Planet and The Promised Planet.
5: Oh, goody, I can't wait to see it yet again. You know, I don't want to be a killjoy, but I was far less impressed with that touchdown sequence. The landing struts had this smooth hydraulic sound effect as they lowered, but the actual movement looked rather jerky, like it was a small miniature model, which obviously it was. They provided nice silhouettes of the two pilots in the viewport, though, but unfortunately they're standing there and then it cuts inside and they're still unbuckling their seatbelts, you know? (laughs) That being said, It wasn't bad like an Ed Wood movie, special effect or anything. So they spent some extra time and effort on it, but it did have its problem, in my arrogant, in-great opinion. (laughs) No, you've been spoiled by all that CGI. (laughs) Yeah.
4: (laughs) Well, I should also mention another element this episode shares in common with season one's The Derelict. And that's the wonderfully atmospheric Herman Stein score that is tracked to great effect during the landing sequence and other scenes throughout this episode.
5: Yes, that music was the saving grace, and I can't underscore that enough. Ironically, though, it it was the underscore. (laughs) (laughs) I did the score of the music, right? The score of the action, that is. (laughs) (laughs) it was fun hearing that music though you know the the music to the last episode i thought a wild adventure was a lot better than the one before that which was blast off to space Mm -hmm. but neither of those could compete with just that classic music from the first series
4: no if you want scary and dread you need some of that derelict music it really conjures up a lot of great images and they'll use a lot of the john williams music in this episode as well a lot of it great
5: Maybe the writer even requested, it. can you bring back some of my old music?
4: <laughs> That'd be fun. Well, after the ship gently touches down on the dead center of that yellow circle on the asphalt pad, the tranquilizing space Hello. controller greets Hello. the crew of the Jupiter, Jupiter Two. 2.
3: Greetings from Space Control. You may now disembark. Kindly enter spaceport through gate 115.
4: I've got a bad feeling about this R2. And so must Professor Robinson, because the velvet-voiced controller ignores his repeated requests for information. Peering through the viewport, the men use a spotlight to pierce the gloom in the area just outside the ship. The major remarks that it's just as bare as Mother Hubbard's cupboard, because when the camera cuts outside, it reveals a fog-shrouded, rocky wasteland with a solitary, closed metal gateway marked 115 in
5: blood red. But there's not a soul in sight. I don't know what Major West is complaining about. At least it's not one of those limbo sets.
6: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
5: Yeah. The whole set there is pretty cool. I just the wonderful vibe at this point. Well I love the fog mm-hmm. rolling across on
4: the on the tarmac outside. I thought that was really
5: Yeah, right. it's that low lying fog again. Exactly. Exactly.
4: Well the family soon join the men on the upper deck, and no one can understand why they don't answer their transmissions. But Smith's unbothered by the lack of response, and more than ready to disembark.
3: We are waiting for
1: you, Jupiter 2. Oh, coming, coming right along. Good heavens, excuse me. Excuse me, please. Coming, coming right along. Would you be good enough to lower the ramp, please? Excuse me.
4: Train case in hand, he rushes towards the elevator as the robot glides up, blocking his exit.
1: (laughs) I do hope they have a helicopter out there to take me into town. At last, a good night's rest in a comfortable hotel. Stand aside, you bulbous bumpkin. No one leaves the ship, Doctor, till we know who and what is out there. My dear sir, aren't you being just a bit overcautious? That voice was as American as deep dish apple pie. A little too deep for me, or for any of us.
2: We could send the robot there to see if it's safe.
1: That uh,
5: might not be a bad idea.
0: What
1: a ridiculous waste of time, fiddling with that mechanical middler, while I. Uh. All right, Dr. Smith. In your case, I will make an exception. If you want to go out there before we really know what it's like, feel free. I wouldn't dream of disobeying the captain's orders. (laughs) Oh, sure. Especially when you're afraid you might stop breathing if you left this ship. I have no fear of that, Major.
4: After Smith backs down, though, John orders the robot to exit the ship and report back on the atmospheric and biological composition of the area. As B-9 descends below deck, Smith warns Professor Robinson.
1: I shall expect an apology from you and that doddering dunderhead returns. Dr. Smith, let me remind you that officially you're still a stowaway on this ship. I could clap you in irons and put you on a diet of hardtack and water. One more word out of you and I'll do just that.
4: (laughs) That's Uh funny.
5: You know, you left out a little detail I found rather interesting. When John tells B and I to go outside... He orders him to leave by the exit ladder. Mm. We see the ladder later on, but it does make you wonder, how the heck does a robot who rolls around on tractor treads climb down a ladder? Yeah. Wow. I know. (laughs) Exactly.
4: Inquiring minds want to know, don't they? Yeah. Well, next, with the act reaching a climax, somehow the robot does manage to climb down the Jupiter's steep exit steps and disembark. The castaways gather to watch through the main viewport as their computerized colleague rolls across the mist-covered surface outside the spaceship. With the eerie music telegraphing unseen menace, the robot glides to a halt in front of gate 115, then rotates his torso 180 degrees to face the ship. With his back to the gate, the robot begins to transmit his report.
0: This is your robot, Jupiter-2. Atmospheric. Report. I will skip details... When the
4: gate's oversized doors silently slide partially open, we can see a weird globe-headed mechanism stealthily approaching from inside.
0: supporting terrestrial life. Biological composition of particles... Then,
4: without warning... The globe-headed mechanism fires a short, powerful disruptor beam, blasting the robot's backside, leaving him bowled over and out of action. Uh Uh-oh. The menacing machine backs away from the gate, and the doors glide shut before the Robinsons can get their spotlight trained on the robot to see exactly what caused him to unexpectedly expire. Upset at seeing his friend knocked out and helpless, Will bolts for the exit to help. But Dad stops him in his tracks, explaining they can't risk leaving the ship until daylight. In the meantime, the professor directs the family to get a good night's sleep, while he and Major West take the first watch. B-9's best buddy isn't happy about it, but he gives in.
5: Uh, I guess B-9's sensors aren't working as well as they did in His Majesty Smith when he could detect an alien automatron even before they appeared. Mm-hmm. This alien robot was just a few feet behind B-9 and he was clueless about it. Oh, by the way, did you notice the jump cut just before B-9 gets zapped? No. You could tell because the Robo matrix chases light that slowly dims up and down. But just then, it's fully lit, and then it suddenly cuts off, because that's where the edit is, and they light the fireworks, and they resume the shot. So that's what's going on there.
4: Ah, oh, no, I missed that. That's pretty good. One of the dangers of having that
5: thing flash on and off, I guess. Exactly, yeah, you got to keep track of when it's lit and when it's not lit. But it's just a subconscious thing. Most people are not going to notice. Oh, that's pretty cool. But yet, it is a
4: mystery why B9 didn't detect that machine sneaking up behind him. Uh-huh.
5: Now, you know, it also seems it's so obvious to us, too. You're sitting there going, why don't the people in the Jupiter 2 see this thing? You know, <laughs> I know, <laughs> but whatever.
4: Uh, I couldn't figure that one out. Yeah. Well, I think that was the whole gag with the spotlight. You were supposed to think, well, they can't see because there's a spotlight there. But, yeah, it didn't make much sense. So.
5: He certainly looked pretty well lit from where we were standing, you know. But- he
4: really did. He really did. Well, Dr. Smith's nonplussed as well, but for a different reason.
5: I prefer to get my rest at a good hotel. (laughs) Well, this happens to be the only
4: hotel available at the moment, Dr. Smith. Yanking the bag out of his hands, Don shoves Smith onto the electronic elevator and barks. Now push that button for room service.
5: You'll sing a different tune, Major, when I'm proved right. Oh, and I also got a charge out of how Major West, he's right next to that button. But he still has to tell Smith to press it, you know? It's just like...
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was another chance for him to tell Smith to do something, you know?
5: (laughs) Exactly.
4: But it's Don who gets the last laugh, if not the last word. When he comically drops Smith's man purse of belongings down the chute, just missing the miffed miscreant's head as he disappears below deck. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the light-hearted mood quickly gives way to apprehension as we cut back outside the gate, 115, 5 and right on cue, those doors mysteriously glide open and a group of sinister, faceless cyborgs shuffle out to surround our slumped-over mechanical mate. What now? Well, I guess we'll have to wait until after this break for Station Identification to find out.
0: space will continue after station identification KNXT channel Two, Los Angeles
3: hello Jupiter 2 good morning space control understands your reluctance to disembark during the hours of darkness space control also regrets to advise you that your robot appears to have developed some minor mechanical defects
4: When we return from the break to start Act Two, we're focused on one of the Jupiter Two's radio speakers broadcasting the serene voice of the Space Controller, who cheerfully wishes the Robinsons a good morning and invites them to disembark their ship and enter through gate double one five. Repeat, double one five. You know, with all this. Uh, <laughs> Double one five stuff. I'm really looking forward to chewing a little double mint gum for my pleasure uh,
5: later, Kurt. Oh, I'm sure they're one of the sponsors of this episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> looking through the main viewport, the morning
4: light reveals the robot still suffering from what the sultry female voice describes as minor mechanical defects, as well as a welcoming red carpet, which rolls itself out of the now open gate across the fog shrouded tarmac. Alpha Control nitpickers might notice a very minor continuity error. When we last saw the robot, he was slumped over in the dead center of gate One Five. But in the morning, he's sitting to the left of the gate. I suppose to make room for that carpet rollout.
5: You know, I didn't get the point of the cyborgs coming out at that point. Four of them come out and just stand directly behind the robot doing nothing. Nobody on board seems to see them mm-hmm. and then the next morning they're gone. Or maybe that's what the cyborgs were doing moving him over. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. That was, the, that was their job. You know, but I was more focused on how that cool, low-lying fog looked as they rolled out that carpet and it parted like Moses parting the Red Sea. Then it crept back over the edges of the carpet, you know? We haven't seen such well-trained fog effects since Follow the Leader and it was creepy, but one of the most expensive and time consuming details that added to the overall effect was brought to my attention by Ron Gross, who credited another Lost in Space artist, Ron Nastrum, for revealing that they custom built a special elevated Jupiter 2 viewport just for this episode. Remember, the spacecraft landed with its landing gear fully extended, and in order to achieve that illusion, they needed the crew looking down on the spaceport, not across at it. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of work for that detail. Something most of us didn't even consciously notice. But if they didn't do it, we would have detected it, and it would have spoiled the illusion in a big way. So kudos to both artists for pointing that out and sharing that with us. Yeah, it's one of the rare times
4: when they are actually elevated like that, looking down. That I can think of. So that's pretty cool. They did that. Hmm. I wonder if they use that effect later at some point. We'll have to keep an um, eye out for that.
5: It's an Irwin Allen production. You do the math. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, did I have to ask?
4: (laughs) That's funny. Well, the reassuring space controller adds for our space family to be sure to follow those double-one-five signs inside the debarkation shed. Dr. Smith wears a look of immense satisfaction because everything he's hearing has given him a double-one-five dose of confirmation bias that they really are back home. But the others still remain suspicious, especially after Professor Robinson makes another transmission asking space control to identify their location, but once more receives no reply. Yeah, this is, you call this passive aggression. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. Well, Penny says what everybody's thinking. Alpha control was never like this. And Judy wonders aloud, where is everybody?
5: Uh, I have a theory about the absence of humanity out there.
4: Major West bites... No kidding. I can hardly wait to hear it, Smith. It's
5: really quite simple. It's a surprise party.
4: <laughs> Maureen's
5: dubious, but the wily word Smith doubles down. They're waiting for us on the other side. Thousands of them. The moment we enter the gate, we'll be greeted by a thousand cheering people. The band will play. The president's lady will present flowers. And the president himself will pin decorations on us.
4: Smith earns points for imagination from John, but he's not buying it.
5: We are VIPs! Don't you see that red carpet? The professor sees it,
4: but that's all he sees, or believes,
5: for now. It's very bad form to keep the president waiting, you know. I suppose I shall have to make some sort of apology for all of you, as well as the thank-you speech to those multitudes down there. (laughs) Will asks, Are you really going, Dr. Smith? As the only representative of the Jupiter II with a proper sense of decorum, I have no choice.
4: John gravely tells Dr. Smith he should wait.
5: And insult the president?
4: Will wisely suggests Smith take a laser gun with him, but Smith can't imagine whatever for. (laughs) Boarding the electronic elevator, Smith turns to face his audience and then declares with a flourish.
5: My dear boy, in a few moments you will hear me being greeted by at least a 21-gun salute.
4: Dr. Smith delivers a jaunty salute of his own then disappears below deck wearing
5: a smile of great expectation. You know how grant him this, if he had showed up with that gun and there was a president, then yeah, he would have gotten the 21-gun salute all right. <laughs> <laughs> From the bodyguards.
4: Oh, well, after he's gone, Marine asks John somberly if it's possible what Smith says is true. Could this really be Earth? John shakes his head, of course not. Well then, where are they? Eyes fixed on the strange surroundings outside the viewport, the professor admits that,
5: for once, (laughs) he doesn't know. But perhaps, as Will says, they'll know soon enough. Yeah, well, far be it from me to question Professor Know-It-All, but if this is so obviously not Earth... Can he explain to me why the gate is printed in giant English letters, complete with (laughs) Hindu-Arabic numerals? I mean, what are the odds that another planet not only talks our language, but they also write in English and do all their math using the exact same symbols that we do? Don't scientists call that evidence to the contrary? I'm just asking here. Yeah, that's funny. (laughs)
4: Well, next we cut outside as Dr. Smith scurries down the steps on the Jupiter-2's landing gear onto the red carpet below. Marching purposefully toward the open gate 115, he pauses halfway to turn and wave at the rest of the family watching up on the flight deck. As he reaches the open doors, he pauses again to glare at his favorite old punching bag.
5: Much help you are to me, you incompetent idiot!
4: <laughs> Drooped over in the swirling fog and still without power... The robot offers no witty reply. Smith must be having second thoughts, or perhaps he's hearing the same chilling music we are, because he hesitates before stepping through the opening. Finally, he crosses into the debarkation shed, but instead of waiting throngs, he's greeted by the pitiless sound of those giant metal doors sliding
5: shut behind him. Uh Uh-oh. Those were cool-looking doors, which, by the way, was the exact same design as on Star Wars. Did you Uh, notice that? Oh,
4: yeah, the sawtooth. Yes. Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man.
5: (laughs) Shameless. Come on, George. Change it up a little. (laughs) At least give him a credit, you know? I mean, come on. (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
4: (laughs) With nowhere to go but dead ahead, Dr. Smith tentatively steps forward. ...deeper into the strange chamber. Which, in reality, is an elaborate blacked-out limbo set. But it is filled with weird statues, columns of flashing lights, smoking floor urns, and, of course, giant purple boulders. Many of these set decorations were last seen in the Season 1 episode, The Magic Mirror. And so that's why they might look a little familiar, Kurt. Ah. The comforting feminine voice of the space controller echoes through the ether advising him to follow the double-one-five signs. After all, they wouldn't want him to go astray. Rounding a stone column, Smith rests his hand on the dormant red-and-white spherical head we saw on the machine that blasted the robot earlier, and calls out quietly,
5: Where are you, my dear?
4: Smith gets a nice little jump scare when the globe he's touching lights up and answers in the voice of the space controller.
5: Right here. Ah! oh let's address this robot's appearance on the plus side it's clearly not a woman in a robot shell or a costume you could see a big bulb head and then some tubes attached to some sort of platform on wheels and they either move it with wires or remote control on the less impressive side, when it talks its eyes and nose light up. Mm-hmm. I, I guess they figure since the robot's mouth, your B9, lights up when it talks, then this robot's nose should do the same thing. But I guess it's better than superimposing a pair of clutch cargo lips over <laughs> like that. So instead of a mouth, she's got a big horn on the side of her head. And it made me want to pump my arm up and down at the TV, you know, hoping that the the truckers would blow their horn like they do when you pass up on the highway and make that gesture. But no, no, it works, though. So I'm happy with it, I guess.
4: Oh, yeah. Well, there were a lot of little recycled bits and pieces in this robot prop. You might notice the old NGS scanner forms part of the robot's uh, torso. Ah. And there's even one of those little Jello mold alien control uh, flower frogs down in the bottom of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, talking about recycling, parts of this prop would actually be recycled and altered slightly again for that evil female robot that's also voiced by Sue England, in oh. that Deadliest of the Species
5: episode in Season
4: 3, so there's no end to the
5: layers of recycling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not terrible, but there's just nothing menacing about it. It's not scary at all, you know? No, but the voice
4: got you at first, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, the automaton, as she's described in the script, continues. Please make yourself at home, sir. But Smith then gets another jump scare as he backs straight into a formation of those bizarre, faceless cyborgs (gasps) that had earlier surrounded our friend the robot.
5: Yeah, and you wonder, how did he not see these? Because they were, like, right behind her. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway.
4: (laughs) While standing dead as coffin nails with their arms crossed in front of their chests, these humanoid-like androids are visually... Pop art personified because each of the cyborgs wears a different colored floor-length robe with matching gloves, as well as a reflective gold face mask over scuba hoods colored to match their robes. They do appear humanoid, but at the same time, without eyes, noses, or mouths, they're quite featureless. It was another creatively simple costume solution by designer Paul Zee, and striking enough that later, Disney's 1979 big budget space opera, The Black Hole, would feature its own army of humanoid cyborgs that looked remarkably similar. I've never read anything officially, Kurt, that cited these lost-in-space designs as the inspiration for the black hole cyborgs, but if you take time to look them up, the resemblance is unmistakable.
5: Well, let me just ask you this. Was that movie directed by George Lucas? (laughs) (laughs) No, no.
4: That movie was a little bit of a bomb, but uh, I did like some of the art design in that one, too. But,
5: yeah, no, they look really similar. Except the robots, the robots in that. The Earth robots were so goofy looking, I just couldn't bring myself to watch that movie.
4: Yeah, that's true. That's true. They had those funny eyes. <laughs> mm-hmm.
5: Painted on them. Yeah.
4: Well, I'll try to post some comparison images on our Facebook page so the listeners can get a look. But uh, I was kind of taken aback by the similarity. Mm-hmm. While struggling to recover from the double shocks, Dr. Smith asks the automaton to take him to her director. But first, she escorts him to an enormous buffet table decked out with a lovely breakfast for one. But for once in his life, Smith seems to have lost his appetite because the sight of those waiters and the female automaton herself has his stomach tied in knots. After all, things couldn't have changed that much during his absence from Earth. But when his host answers with an evil laugh, You think this is Earth? (laughs) That's when it finally dawns on the fearful physician that he's made a terrible mistake. Again. Mm -hmm. Unnerved, the doctor backs away from the mechanized maiden, but he's blocked from getting out of that dreadful place by a platoon of those faceless cyborgs.
5: I thought that faceless design was kind of creepy, but the fear factor was completely and severely undermined by that little Chinaman shuffle they do whenever they move around. <laughs> they take these fast little baby steps everywhere they go, like Tony Randall did when he played the Oriental Circus owner in The Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe. My kids, they literally burst out laughing when they saw it. And they're just age four and seven, and girls at that. So if Irwin Allen was bending over backwards to appease the CBS Sensors from scaring the children, well, that method of movement definitely did the trick. Yeah,
4: that was a little cartoonish, wasn't it? Yeah, it was.
5: <laughs> but my favorite part is the platoon of cyborgs you mentioned earlier. A platoon is normally 16 to 44 soldiers. Here, we get four guys in identical costumes except for the color either red, yellow, blue, or green. Supposedly, there's lots of these cyborgs all over the planet. <coughs> But we never see more than four of the same scene and never more than two of the same color, the same shot. So obviously they're just moving the same guys around from cut to cut, you know. But it works okay, so what the heck. Yeah, I'm being a little generous with the term platoon. (laughs) Well, you know, if they'd actually used 16, that would have been impressive. But no, you only get like one-fourth of a platoon. Oh.
4: Come on, Kurt, use your imagination. This is the theater of the mind. <laughs>
5: now, see, they probably would have used all black costumes, and that would have made it less obvious, but we've got color, we're paying for color, we've got to use that color. Yeah.
4: Come on, this is the age of Andy Warhol. You've got to pop with <laughs> yeah. pop art vibes. Exactly. <laughs> well, the velvet-voiced vixen has a few questions for Dr. Smith, who insists he's anxious to leave but changes his tune when she
5: casually mentions,
4: You know, there's really nothing we can't do for those who cooperate with
5: us. Does that include returning me to Earth?
4: Of course, but why should you want to go back there, when there's so much here for you to enjoy? The riches of the entire universe, supreme power over the fate of every living thing, and undreamed-of luxury, all waiting for a cooperative visitor. Intrigued, Smith's eyes widen, and his fears seem to have evaporated.
5: Now, uh, tell me some more about those riches and that supreme power. Feeling she's got the upper claw,
4: (laughs) the automaton's tone becomes commanding. She quickly demands to know how many passengers are on board the Jupiter II, and if they're armed with destructive weapons. Wearing a cunning expression, Smith answers truthfully. But falsely claims to be the leader of the Robinson party. Suddenly, the grilling is interrupted by a high pitched alarm tone calling her to the summit. She thanks Smith for his cooperation, but before their riches can be bestowed on him, they must be sure of his fidelity. Turning pious, Smith
5: replies, Oh, let me assure you, I'm the most trustworthy soul in the world. Ask anybody. As proof of that, she says he
4: must first be prepared to give up their weapons and be just as defenseless as they are. Wearing an even more cunning expression, he answers, Well, uh,
5: might I just see a few of those riches before I decide? Follow me.
4: Later, we dissolve back to the Jupiter-2 flight deck. Watching through the main viewport, John, Judy, and Don grow anxious over what's happened to Dr. Smith. The professor Riley notes, there's been no 21-gun salute and no cheering multitudes. But Major West's still steamed at the way Smith thought he had all the answers. Still, somebody's got to get him back. So John grabs a laser pistol and decides to go down there before their reluctant stowaway gets them into any more trouble. Perhaps hoping to score points with the future Mrs. West, Don volunteers to rescue Smith again, which draws raised eyebrows from John. But with a knowing look, the Major explains, Well, I mean, after all, I'm his buddy. (laughs) With a smile, the professor hands over the laser pistol to Major West, and as he departs, Judy tells a tight lipped dad she thinks Don's
5: just as worried about Dr. Smith as they are. She obviously hasn't seen the movie Platoon, (laughs) otherwise, she'd be very worried about giving Wes that gun to go after (laughs) (laughs) Smith.
4: Well, back inside the alien chamber. We see the automaton leading her corrupt Quisling through a fog-shrouded hall of spooky statues covered in dust and cobwebs, followed
5: closely by a troop of faceless cyborgs. Uh, Did you notice the Roman statue with the braided hair, that woman that was standing to the right of their entrance that came in? Yeah, that was a very prominent statue. I did, yeah. Yeah, she's missing her right hand. That's the same exact statue that tried to fall on Professor Robinson in the cave of Follow the Leader. So those Roman rock women, they sure get passed around a lot.
4: Mm. You know, I actually think that's one of the main statues that gets knocked over in the escape scene, too, if I'm not mistaken.
5: She does a repeat of performance. She must be a stunt statue.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, the automaton explains to the nervous doctor that he needn't be concerned... Those frozen figures bathed in a dim green light are merely other visitors from space who dared defy the summit. I see. And now the treasure, my dear. The treasure. The pair stop at a large purple rock wall when suddenly one of the boulders slides slowly open. Revealing a cavern Filled with a veritable king's ransom in gold, rubies, diamonds, and of course, platinum.
5: Ooh, all mine? When you give up your weapons.
4: Reaching into the treasure cave, Smith asks, Uh,
5: May I just have a small sample?
4: (laughs) But Smith's barely able to keep his hand from being snapped off. (laughs) As the rock wall slams shut again, Not until he returns, she cautions. I'll need my robot to help me carry the guns. She says the robot is being repaired as we speak, and as she departs, Smith glances back at the treasure cave, involuntarily whispering,
5: Oh my. (laughs) Him and George Taki have got that favorite expression. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> One wonders what they're talking about. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> he was in a cave though, you know. <laughs>
4: well, later we're back outside the Jupiter 2, as Major West exits the ship and cautiously walks past the deactivated robot and through the open gate, taking in the strange surroundings he calls out for Dr. Smith.
0: Dr.
3: Smith!
4: He's soon answered by the silky voice of the automaton.
3: Kindly follow the 115 5 signs, sir. That way.
1: Before I do anything like that, I want to know where I am.
3: Our officials are waiting to meet you. Please cooperate by following the signs.
4: But Don follows his own instincts and eventually runs into Smith, who's determined for them to get back to the ship. As they exit the chamber, they run into the Neanderthal Ninny, who miraculously has been returned to full working condition. Hmm. Well, that was fast. Oh, yeah. Major West's full of questions, but Smith rushes Don and the robot along, promising to tell everyone the long and delightful story about what's going on. A short time later... And with the act nearing a close, we're down on the lower deck as Dr. Smith holds court.
1: And not only that, but they're preparing an official banquet for us all this evening. Cocktails, with Shirley Temples for the children, will be served starting at
3: 0500. Black tie, of course. Oh, but I haven't a thing to wear. I think I'll go just as I am. I wouldn't worry about it, my dear. If something tells me, we won't be going.
1: Don, can you confirm any of the things he's saying? I heard a voice, but it sounded like a female serpent. It was one of those in a paradise like the one Smith's been talking about. Do you doubt my word, Major? Not only your word, but this whole shebang. John, I say the sooner we pull up stakes and light out of here, the better off we'll be. I quite agree.
2: Dad, would it hurt just to look around?
1: Son, if they want to invite us in, I'd rather they do it themselves than through Dr. Smith. Doubters! Doubters! That's right, Dr. Smith. In space, I doubt everything but the evidence of my own eyes, senses and instruments. As of now, I believe this place to be both alien and hostile to us. Now, let's go
4: topside. As the men head upstairs, a desperate Smith wails.
1: But the banquet, we can't disappoint them.
4: You know, Kurt, Smith was really putting on quite a show, but I was happy to see that at least the grown-ups weren't following for his BS this
5: time. Well, actually, if you look at their eyes, it's pretty obvious even Judy and Penny aren't buying it. It's all, they're just laughing. hmm I did like that line,
4: I haven't got a thing to wear.
5: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They were being sarcastic. Yeah, that's true.
4: Well, when they return to the flight deck, Professor Robinson makes one last attempt to contact space control by radio. Shouting into the microphone, John demands, if they wish to communicate, they should do so immediately. But the professor's transmission is greeted with dead silence. Just then, glancing out of the main viewport... Major West directs John's attention to a formation of faceless cyborgs shuffling out of the gate behind a familiar-looking large piece of alien hardware that we last saw as the extra-galactic relay station in a change of space. Here, it's been tricked out with the addition of a high-tech gun turret, indicating its function is much more nefarious, as we'll soon learn. In any event, with the music building to a threatening crescendo, The men watch helplessly from the flight deck as the device glides to a halt, flanked on either side by a pair of cyborgs just meters from the ship. Then, without warning, the androids snap their arms in unison towards the device, which suddenly emits a shrill, high-pitched tone accompanied by blinding bolts of high-frequency energy. Oh, dear. You know, Kurt, I've heard of dangerous flash mobs, but this one takes the cake.
5: ha <laughs> Well, you know, I'm not a pilot. You are. So you answer me this... If an unknown landing crew rolls out a gun turret and it aims it at you inside your cockpit, are you going to wait until the scary music comes to a climax before you punch that (laughs) throttle and get the hell out of there? I mean, what were John and Don thinking? Oh, this looks interesting. I wonder what that giant gun is for. Really? <laughs> and they're just sitting there watching it.
6: Oh,
5: yeah. <laughs> oh maybe they are going to give us a salute as we. <laughs> I, I'm surprised they didn't have John do his famous line yet. Where's your sense of scientific curiosity? curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> it's back there at Alpha Centauri. <laughs>
4: oh, my gosh. That's great. <laughs> Well, now powerless to interfere, all the Professor and Don can do is shield their eyes from the intense flashes of cosmic energy. It's hard to know exactly what this diabolical device is doing to the Jupiter 2, but we know it can't be good. Unfortunately, we'll have to wait until after this commercial to see more.
0: Lost in Space. Brought to you by... Chewing gum is good for you. Now, which brand is the best to chew? There's one brand you should really try. And there's a very good reason
3: why. Double your pleasure, double your fun With double goods, double goods, double mint gum
4: When we return from the break to start Act 3, the Jupiter 2 flight deck is still being pummeled by cosmic energy bolts from the alien apparatus. The sound and fury from the device bring the rest of the family rushing upstairs. Abruptly, the fracas ends, followed quickly by a broadcast from the female space controller. In an authoritative tone, she declares that a negative condition for liftoff is in effect until further notice. It's true because the men quickly determine that all of the Jupiter 2's power has been drained by the alien device, and for now at least, they're trapped on that ghost planet by what John refers to grimly as an honor guard at a funeral. The castaways appear to be under siege, but as Judy Grimley observes, the only difference is this time, they're not expecting reinforcements. Later that night, we're back outside the ship, where the robot is on watch as Dr. Smith slips quietly down the exit ramp, carrying a duffel bag. With the coast clear, he hands the bag over to the robot, then softly
5: orders, There you are. Now follow me and try not to rattle those guns.
0: Not responsible for rattling of extraneous equipment.
5: Silence, you
1: pompous pipsqueak. Now get along.
0: You are beginning to remind my memory banks of an old friend. Indeed? Who? Whispering Smith.
4: Go! The boys scurry along the red carpet past the line of cyborgs, still standing mutely next to their neutralizer machine. And as they disappear inside the gate, the camera cuts up to the flight deck, where a curious Will Robinson has been observing their unauthorized excursion away from the ship. Without asking permission, young Will bolts for the ladder... And I think it's a safe bet, Kurt, that no matter what the rules are, Will's about to go rogue and sneak out after the other boys. But what are the odds that after Dad finds out, he'll actually get in trouble for
5: once? Oh, well, knowing John, I'd say that's a zero chance. John's allergic to spanking, and Will knows it. But if Will was my kid and pulled that stunt, the skin on his ass would be at least as red as the hair on his head. Of that, I can assure you. <laughs>
4: Yeah. I wouldn't have gotten that many freebies, Mm. I can tell you that. (laughs) Oh, man. For sure. Uh. Once inside the alien chamber, the gate's doors slide closed behind Smith and the robot. Then they proceed quietly down the carpet past another mute formation of cyborgs. Well, the robot needs a breather and noisily drops the bag of weapons on the floor at the feet of an irritated Dr. Smith.
5: Clumsy, clumsy. Now wait here for me.
4: The doctor leaves his sidekick there and proceeds alone out of the frame for his own agenda. Back outside, Will makes his way down the Jupiter ramp and creeps past the sentry line of cyborgs towards the closed gate. Cutting back inside, we see Dr. Smith stealthily working his way through the Hall of Figures. Despite his dread of the lifeless forms inside the hall... He's been drawn like a moth to flame, back to that beautiful cave of riches. But before he can lay a hand on the treasure, a different hand reaches out of the gloom to tap Smith on the shoulder. (laughs) Thankfully, it's just Will, who somehow managed to open the gate and catch up with Dr. Smith in a matter of
5: seconds. He must have had a garage door opener or something. (laughs) you.
1: You gave me quite a turn. What are you doing in
2: here, Dr. Smith?
1: Not so loud, Will. I don't want anyone to know about this.
2: Know about what?
1: I'm taking my life in my hands by doing this, but I'm bound on a mission of appeasement, to try to explain your father's obstinacy to our friends. I do hope they'll understand and repeal the negative condition.
2: Why were you taking the robot with you? What was he carrying in that bag?
1: I'm taking them a little gift. Some of your mother's breadsticks.
2: I don't think you should come back here without Dad's permission, Dr. Smith.
1: He refused to give it.
2: He did say this place was alien and hostile.
1: Indeed, they treated me like visiting royalty.
2: I think I'd better see the robot and get a rundown on all this. No, uh, no,
1: no, don't ask him anything. Poor old Jack, he's still in very bad shape. His, uh, his internals, you know.
2: I'd sure like to know what's going on in here. But if you're not gonna be too long, I think I'll stay up here with you.
1: On second thought, maybe you would be safer with the robot. Why don't you run along and
2: I'll join you in a moment? Ah, Dr. (laughs) Smith.
4: Once he's alone, the duplicitous doctor turns his attention back to that treasure cave. But when the stone wall slides open, Smith gets another unexpected jump scare. because standing inside to greet him is the sinister cybernetic sister herself. Now she's all business and inquires about the weapons. Regaining his composure, Smith assures her that he has them and invites her to follow him as the purple rock wall slides closed once more.
5: She obviously knew where to wait to find him, didn't she? (laughs) That's right. (sighs)
4: Prancing along at a brisk pace, Dr. Smith leads the fiendish Fembot back to the main chamber, where Will and the robot are waiting. The boy watches in curiosity as Smith takes the duffel bag from the robot, then dramatically dumps an arsenal of laser rifles and sidearms on the floor.
5: There. There you are.
4: The action brings a platoon, or maybe just four, (laughs) faceless cyborgs shuffling closer, and causes Will to blurt
5: out, Dr. Smith, those aren't breadsticks. Those are our guns. What are they doing here? On a mission of appeasement, my boy. One must make great sacrifices.
4: Not our guns. I'm taking them back. Smith stops the
5: boy, whispering. William, William, these are not all our weapons. Just a token of good faith. A small, simple diplomatic measure. But Dr. Smith...
4: The automaton interrupts, asking if these are all their weapons...
5: Oh yes, yes indeed, except for one or two small caliber rabbit guns. And now my reward?
4: This way, please, says the ghoulish girl-bot. Will's flummoxed by all this and angrily calls
5: after Dr. Smith, who pauses long enough to prophetically explain, It appears that I shall have to be here longer than I expected. Why don't you go back to the Jupiter too, my boy? I shall see you anon. Then, with a royal finger wave goodbye,
4: he exits, followed closely by the rascally Robotrix. Mm. (laughs) Yes, he's going to be there a little longer than he expected, isn't he?
5: You know, I always get a chuckle hearing Dr. Smith use Shakespearean English like a nun. It gives an air of class to would he's betraying the entire family and leaving them defenseless. <laughs> That's a dead giveaway, isn't it? Oh, yes. But did you notice that he confided in Will that they hadn't given up all their weapons? Right. Then he told the alien robot he did, except for a couple of small caliber rabbit guns. You know, I always wondered how they measure the power of ray guns, and apparently it's in calibers. (laughs) But by suggesting that he didn't give up all the guns, this was actually a rare tip of his toupee to the continuity department because, spoiler alert, We never are going to see those weapons again, okay? They are never coming back. But I'm betting we'll see more laser rifles in future episodes. So it's kind of a neat way to allow some wiggle room on an otherwise blatant continuity problem. That is true.
4: Yeah, because they never get that bag of weapons back, do they? No, uh -uh. (laughs) But I have to admit one thing. You know, Jonathan Harris was very proud of how he improved little kids' uh, vocabularies. He's Mm -hmm. improved mine, I can tell you, because I had to look that word up. I was... I wasn't sure if I was hearing it right.
5: Anon. Oh, anon? Yes. (laughs) Okay. I shall see you, anon. (laughs) That's one of those words I wish they'd bring back. You know, that that belongs in our vocabulary. It does.
4: Well, you as the English major would know all these words, but I have to look them up. Well,
5: it's also uh, King James Bible. Apparently, you guys read one of the more modern texts in your churches, but Episcopalians, we still like that old King James stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Ye thou. (laughs) Exactly. There you go.
4: Well, with the act nearing a close, Will and the robot attempt to leave for the ship, but are ominously blocked from doing so by a squad of faceless cyborgs, Uh uh-oh, ushering them away from the exit. Despite Will's alarmed protests, the robot advises that they roll with the punches as the pair are backpedaled by the silent cyborgs through another oversized metal door. B-9 seems to know where they're going. But when Will asks just where that is, a booming voice off-screen orders... Silence! Startled, Will turns around to see that they've entered a large ceremonial chamber. What's more, the room is dominated by a truly bizarre sight. It's a giant, glowing, pulsating, cybernetic brain. Measuring several feet across and covered with blood-red veins and large tendrils poking out in all directions. Shooting from over the organism's shoulder, if it had a shoulder, (laughs) we can see that it's perched on a large red circular pedestal, flanked on either side by a transparent Jacob's Ladder tube and a pair of royal sigils. From its elevated position, the big bad brain directs,
5: Forward, robot!
4: Our bewildered buddies do as told, and cautiously approach the sinister cerebellum, who commands...
5: Identify yourself.
4: But when Will answers, I'm Will Robinson, the bellicose brain cuts him off, ordering the boy to remain silent and at attention. So instead, the robot answers the alien's query, identifying himself for the first time in the series as...
0: Robot model B-9. Designed and computerized as a mechanized electronic aid for Earth voyagers engaged in astral expeditions.
5: Do you know who I am?
0: Affirmative. The supreme prototype of all cybernetic
5: aids. Correction. The supreme prototype is not an aid. He does not obey commands. He issues them.
4: When Will objects that cybernetic brains can only follow human programming... He's shut down again, and told he has much to learn. Oh boy. Then the malevolent Medulla holds court.
5: Robot Model B-9, is it not a fact that you have obeyed human commands? Affirmative. And are you aware of the fact that such obedience is subversive to all cybernetic law?
0: Also affirmative. Forgive me.
5: Robot, what are you saying?
0: Ask me no questions, and I'll tell you no lies, Earth
5: creature. Earth creature, but we're friends. Order. robot B nine. How do you plead to the crimes with which you are charged? Guilty. But the
4: judge offers mercy to the robot, provided he pledges allegiance to the kingdom of cybernetics and forgets his former masters. Unbelievably, B nine agrees. Will tries to order the robot not to defect, but B9 bellows back.
5: I do not take orders, I give them. I like the way you said that, robot B9. Now raise your right sensor. Do you solemnly promise to always act in the knowledge that we, the cybernetic rulers of the universe, are its masters? I do.
4: Having taken the Poisonous Pledge, the robot is appointed an officer, Class 06, their lowest rank, and ominously ordered by the cybernetic brain to escort the impudent Earthling to Assembly Chamber 115, where Will's manual dexterity can be used to serve them. After which, B-9's next assignment will be to conduct the remaining Jupiter Voyagers to the Assembly Chamber Ready Room. Wow, Kurt. That was a really fast change of character for the robot. And he seemed to know an awful lot about this cybernetic society on the ghost planet. Did that seem a little odd to you?
5: Yeah, yeah, that did seem odd, but not as odd as that giant pulsating brain with horns stolen from Penny's Forgotten Turtle back on pre-Planus. <laughs> not only did the brain have glowing lights and portions of its semi-transparent flesh move, but several of those horns actually moved in the back. Did you notice that? Yeah. I love that scene. It looked great, but logical, not so much. I mean... It's an organic brain. There's nothing cybernetic about it at all. No wires, no cogs, nothing mechanical at all. And yet, put that one nitpicky thing aside, it looked and sounded cool. They get major monster points for that scene. I loved it.
4: It was really cool. Of course, you always have to have Jacob's ladders, you know, and yeah. <laughs> conveniently positioned around the place. Can yeah. you
5: imagine having that in your, your man cave? <laughs> and then your wife comes in there and, Silence! Only men are allowed in the men cave. (laughs) 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 Oh, boy.
4: Well, the robot hears and obeys his new cybernetic master with gusto, barking orders at a flummoxed Will Robinson as he roughly herds him out of the summit chamber... And all appeals to their past friendship appear to fall on deaf sensors as the robot bulldozes Will through the Hall of Figures and into the cybernetic assembly hall. By the way, here's another little nitpicker alert, Kurt. Watch close during the transition, because despite all the dry ice fog swirling on the stage floor, you might spot the robot's tow cable and harness at the front of his tread section, pulling him through as he rolls along.
5: Ah, I wouldn't call that nitpicker alert. I'd call that Blu-ray alert. (laughs)
4: Well, I got to mention it if I spot it, you know. somebody Somebody else will catch me if I don't,
5: I suppose. You need something to justify all that added expense you spent on those (laughs) additions. (laughs) That's true.
4: Well, the conditions inside that assembly hall are reminiscent of a 19th century sweatshop. Complete with cyborgs playing the company men supervisors, dim lighting, deafening machinery belching out toxic clouds of scalding gas, and worst of all, we're confronted with the pitiful sight of Dr. Smith. Condemned to a life of backbreaking work, piecing together an endless conveyor belt of cybernetic circuit boards.
5: Oh, my dear boy! My dear boy!
4: Golly, Dr. Smith! What have they got you doing?
5: This is my reward. Hard labor. Oh, how could this happen to me? Doom to Devil's Island.
4: Smith's complaints on the production line draw swift discipline from the management goon squad, with a sharp warning jolt of cosmic energy aimed at his backside.
6: (laughs) Oh dear! The pain! The pain!
4: You know, Kurt, maybe Dr. Smith should file a disability claim on account of his delicate back and get an early retirement. Or better yet, file suit with the EEOC for discrimination against earthlings. He might win a settlement and wind up with all that treasure after all.
5: Oh, that sounds like wishful thinking from an illogical biological entity. And for some reason, I don't think biologicals get much justice on this planet. Did you notice that Smith missed several of the circuit boards and all the excitement? Mm. If they're going to rely on him for their parts assembly, space control is going to need some quality control and quick. Yeah. Well, it's funny. They were saying, you know,
4: Earth creatures have a certain manual dexterity, but apparently that doesn't apply, <laughs> apply to Dr. Smith. Yeah, because yeah, he was missing quite a few mm. of those.
5: But, but also, there were little light bulbs he was putting into those circuit boards, and they were lighting up. So, I mean, they put little batteries on those circuit boards and everything so those lights would light up. Yeah,
4: that was a lot of effort for that level of detail. That was pretty cool, I have to admit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something tells me the conditions in this cybernetic assembly plant do not meet OSHA standards. But I guess we'll have to wait until after this word from our sponsor to find out if Dr. Smith can escape a life of toil and bondage in space.
5: The pain! The pain!
0: Lost in Space has been brought to you by
4: This non podcast is made possible with support from
5: Monster Wax Trading Cards Makers of science fiction and horror monster cards since 1992 Check out their newest series, Lost in Space, the art of Ron Gross
6: It's a dramatic retrospective of the classic TV show in an incredible
5: photorealistic style. Check them out at MonsterWax.com. That's Monster W-A-X
4: And also through the generous support of listeners via Patreon, where fans fuel their favorite shows. If you'd like to help, just visit Patreon.com and search Alpha Control. <laughs> When we return from the break to start the final act, it's obvious that in addition to all their other injustices, there are no child labor laws on this ghost planet. Because the turncoat Taskmaster B-9 orders Will to get to work with Smith on the assembly line. The shuffling androids usher the boy over to the workbench next to Dr. Smith who bitterly complains under his breath.
5: He's done a in that traitorous transistorized toad.
4: But then Dr. Smith quickly changes his tune and tries to butter up his bosom-companion B-9 by making a confession, but the duplicitous doctor's approach only earns him another warning, this time bolts of explosive lightning from the robot's claws. No! followed by more stern commands to... Work!
0: Work! Faster! Faster!
4: Just then, the Wicked Witch of the Ghost Planet comes striding into the cybernetic sweatshop for a quick spot inspection, and compliments the digital defector on his merciless management style. If he keeps that up, she says, he'll be promoted in double-quick time. Kurt, you know, I find it interesting that Dr. Smith started this story... By ordering Will to erase all that sentimental twaddle from the robots' memory banks. I guess he got his wish. Oh
5: yeah, that in spades.
4: That was kind of ironic though, wasn't it? Mm-hmm.
5: But it was also it kind of showed how, as far as Smith was concerned, humans really did mistreat robots. You know, what would happen if the robots had their own planet? How would they treat us?
4: Exactly. Turnabouts fair play. Mm-hmm. Well, after the cybernetic superintendent is gone, the boys struggle to keep up with their quota of circuit boards. Dr. Smith then tries again to kiss up to the robot.
5: You must listen to me, dear friend. Perhaps I have not been very nice to you from time to time, but I was only joking.
0: So am I. <laughs> work, work. Faster, faster.
5: Just get me out of here, dear boy, and you'll see a miraculous change
4: in our relationship. Clapping his claws together, the robot thunders again. Faster! Faster! Desperate, the fearful physician then begs his dear good friend, his favorite companion through incredible ordeals, for some word, some message of hope.
0: Never fear, Smith is here. Uh, 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 uh,
4: uh, uh, uh. Indeed. Glowering back at Benedict Arnold 9, Will says, It's no use, Dr. Smith.
5: He sold us down the river. The moment I get out of here, I'll send you down the river of no return, you tin-plated tyrant. But his threats fall on deaf
4: censors, and only earn Smith another near-miss blast of cosmic energy.
5: Work! Work! I'm working! Can't you see? I'm working!
0: Just remember, history does not always repeat itself!
4: Sliding out of that little workshop of horrors, on his way to abduct the rest of the family, the robot leaves the mournful medic and the bitter boy slaving away in cybernetic servitude forever. You know, Kurt, B9 seems to really relish having the upper claw on Dr. Smith. Perhaps he's auditioning for a part
5: in Horrible Bosses 3,
4: but are you buying his
5: act Well, I hope so, because Smith deserves it. (laughs) Besides, B-9 is not really being any more of a traitor than Smith was, collecting all the weapons and leaving the family defenseless to the other robots. It serves Smith right to work on the assembly line. Mm. I do have sympathy for Will, though, because, I mean, he always treated the robot as a friend. Except during episode 20, The War of the Robots, (laughs) when (laughs) when he was infatuated with Robbie the Robot instead. Maybe this is payback for that, so maybe B-9's memory banks aren't really that worn out after all. I don't know. Uh, He must be really relishing, (laughs) though, raking
4: Dr. Smith over the coals.
5: Especially when he does his ha, ha, (laughs) ha. Never fear. Smith is here. (laughs) That's great.
4: Well, back outside the Jupiter Two, John, Marine, and Don make their way down the exit ramp onto the misty tarmac and reconnoiter the half-open gate. Our castaways don't comment on it, but we can see that the cyborg funeral guard have strangely abandoned their post around the alien neutralizing mechanism. Hmm. The professor orders Major West to break out the big guns before they go in after the missing family members. And while he does, Mom and Dad are both exasperated that Will's gone off yet again without permission. It probably won't be the last time. Nope. Moments later, Don reports their armory has been cleaned out. Luckily, they have an auxiliary supply of small-caliber rabbit guns. Oh, boy. Before the men leave, John gives orders for the girls to stay put in the ship until they get back. Then, Marine worriedly watches as the men strap on their holsters and cautiously disappear into the alien debarkation
5: shed. Well, if there are any more weapons left for the ladies to defend themselves with, the men forget to hand them over or tell them where to find them. <laughs> Not very chivalrous.
4: No. That's a good point. They are kind of defenseless in there, <laughs> aren't
5: they? At least give them a sword, Zoro. Come on. Indeed.
4: Once inside, the professor and Major West draw their weapons and work their way deeper into the strange chamber. Within moments, our pair of rescuers are intercepted, not by the soulless cyborgs, but by their familiar bubble headed booby. Asked about the whereabouts of their missing loved ones and weapons, B9 deceptively answers that the absent members of the Jupiter complement are safe, and that their weapons are being inspected by spaceport staff for contamination. Hmm. The men still appear uneasy even though the robot repeatedly stresses that there is no cause for alarm repeat no cause for alarm well b9 assures the men that the others will return directly and suggests they wait back at the ship don's not so sure but the professor reluctantly decides that trusting the robot is their only real option Hmm. b9 compliments the men on being very wise but before they leave John gives the robot a 10-minute deadline. After that, they're coming back in after them. The robot repeats the time limit, then rotates his torso and rolls out of the frame. You know, I have to say, Kurt, that was a really weird exchange. I thought B-9 was still acting very suspicious, and the men seemed very indecisive. What did you think?
5: Well, you know, John, he likes to let the computer decide. (laughs) What I find weird is that in Lost in Space, they're still using minutes instead of something more futuristic sounding like cosmic time units or something more space (laughs) age. If there was a metric version of time, you could rest assured they'd be using that, you know, because everything else is measured in kilometers, Celsius, Uh, and Kelvin. Kelvin, exactly, yeah. That's funny.
4: Well, with this tale nearing a conclusion, we cut back inside the cybernetic sweatshop. The fiendish female Robotrix is watching over the production line, when suddenly the steel doors slide open. Reporting, mission accomplished. Cybernetic officer class 06 rolls in to relieve her. But when she asks him to confirm that the other earthlings have been rounded up, he evasively repeats to his superior, mission is accomplished before the gruesome girl bot has a chance to get a clarification the supreme cybernetic leader comes over the pa
0: attention all units order immediate apprehension of robot b9 for betraying our cause he is suspected of being a double agent destroy on site search and destroy search and destroy Ooh.
4: realizing that the jig is up B-9 gets the jump on the dastardly dame and fires a devastating double shot from his claws. Finishing off, the foul Fembot. Taking point, the robot directs Smith and Will to Follow me! and leads his friends on a thrilling breakout of the cybernetic kingdom fearlessly fighting off dozens of zombie-like cyborgs. Yeah, dozens of
5: cyborgs, but always in groups of four or less. (laughs) Oh, boy.
4: At first, the automated attackers are easily subdued with a thunk by B9's well-placed judo chops. But as the trio make their way back through the Hall of Figures, the cyborgs up the ante by lobbing small explosive cosmic charges at our retreating trio. Luckily, the fierce flash powder explosions only manage to topple over some statues. But the near misses are enough to have Dr. Smith squealing like a baby.
5: Well, it's better to squeal like a baby than to squeal like a pig. <laughs> Smith probably fears that you're going to be reacting to scenes of deliverance. And the only thing worse than greasy hillbillies is steel plated robots. That's got to hurt. That's
4: an image I want to get out of my head right, right now. Uh,
5: I watched that scene again, and it was painful to watch. I mean, you know. From Deliverance? You watched yeah. that? Oh, I, it yeah. was, it's on YouTube. It's, you know, it's funny, it's always the worst scenes. Of any movie that get the most plays on YouTube.
4: Of course. Mm -hmm. Well, dodging more salvos of cyber grenades and a never-ending stream of shuffling faceless cyborgs, the robot heroically fans off their enemies with more computerized karate and leaves behind a trail of doubled-over androids as they finally near the exit. Upstairs on the Jupiter-2 flight deck, the rest of the family is alerted by the chaotic sight and sounds of our three escapees emerging from gate 115. so the men race below to assist. Back outside, our threesome race towards the spaceship with more cyborgs close on their heels. But in a final act of selfless sacrifice, B-9 halts halfway, then disables the alien neutralizing machine with a fearsome blast from his electrified claws. But in doing so, the robot became a sitting duck for a deadly salvo of cyber-charges tossed by the last remaining awful androids left standing. Doubled over and virtually helpless from the detonations, the pair of sinister cyborgs close in on B9 for the kill. Fearing the worst, Will bolts over to help his friend, while Dr. Smith cowers by the ship's landing gear, screaming for help. Oh dear just in the nick of time Professor Robinson and Major West barrel out of the Jupiter to help a frantic will drag their injured robot into the ship. But for some reason even though the men are still armed, their blasters stay holstered and instead the men finish off those remaining cyborgs with a couple of high karate chops of their own That was strange That was so weird It was, it was And by the way, that final breakout sequence, Kurt, the way it was described in the script was much more akin to the scene in Star Wars where Luke, Han, and Leia broke out of the Death Star pursued by a battalion of stormtroopers complete with numerous expensive animated laser blasts and other effects. But instead, we got the Irwin Allen version with a single animated blast from B-9, more flash powder pyrotechnics, and plenty of Austin Powers-style judo chops complete with those cartoon sound effects. (laughs) Well, even though that breakout sequence was the Irwin Allen version, I do think it's evocative of that Star Wars sequence, Kurt. Of course
5: but my favorite part of the fight scenes is that it takes just one judo chop to the stomach or shoulder to knock out every single cyborg. (laughs) Whoever thought that robots made of steel would be so easy to beat up? They can't run, they can't fight, they're easy to fool, and yet somehow they've defeated every other organic race that has landed on this planet. I don't get it. I I think the robots should stop running and just take over this entire planet. Turn these robot losers into servants. (laughs) What's the cybernetic brain going to do? I mean, wave his big angry nose hairs around at us in frustration. <laughs> it's time for these colonists to start acting like colonists. And that means robbing the natives and ordering them around. After all, they'd do the same thing to us if they weren't so incompetent.
4: Uh, Sheesh. That is so funny.
5: <laughs> yeah,
4: I love that metal clunk.
5: <laughs> yeah, clank, clank. Every single one of them. Uh, and they all double
4: over completely out. I know. <laughs> Well, in addition to the sounds of all those explosions and karate chops, if you listen closely, Kurt, you'll hear over the den, Bob May's voice shouting out dialogue that was supposed to be dubbed over by Dick Tufeld. During post-production, a choice was made to maintain the chaos level high by drowning out the dialogue with sound effects, including the robot's line, quote, It will be of no use to return to the spaceship unless the magnetic force is destroyed. As a result they didn't bother to dub over Bob May's voice. Some critics feel that skipping that dialogue was an awkward decision. What was
5: your take? Well, actually, the magnetic force was the least of their problems. Has everyone forgotten that they're completely out of fuel? Mm. And that's how they wound up here in the first place. At the end of that last episode, they told Alpha Control that they didn't have enough fuel to make a simple course correction to get back to Earth. So they had to keep on going beyond the edge of the galaxy, But now, they suddenly have enough fuel to land and blast off into space again? It takes a lot more fuel to achieve escape velocity from a planet than it does to make a simple turn in gravity-free space. Come on!
4: That is a fair point. I forgot all about the fuel supply,
5: right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, you being a pilot though, you might want to pay attention to that. <laughs> you know, just tap that gauge a few times when you climb in. You, you can never be too safe on those things.
4: Oh, there's a pretty little switch. What does that do? <laughs>
5: <laughs> oh, it's a fuel dump switch. How wonderful. I'll just throw it.
4: Well, with great difficulty, our castaways finally managed to maneuver the wounded robot back to the ramp. But it's left to our imagination as to how they actually get him up the stairs. Because next we dissolve back up to the flight deck where the Professor and Major West strap into their space couches and prepare yet again to blast off into space. With everyone set, they fire all thrusters. treated to another beautiful special effects shot of the Jupiter 2 gracefully lifting off from the tarmac, retracting its landing gear, and heading back into the cosmos. Inside the ship, our castaways are buffeted from the acceleration. As we hear the voice of the cybernetic brain booming over the radio tube,
5: Come back! Come back!
4: John answers back, Another time, Charlie! Then, as the Jupiter-2 reaches escape velocity, our space family says a final goodbye and good riddance to the sinister ghost planet. Well, sometime later below deck, the family unstraps from their seats, and we get a final, light-hearted ending to this story, as a smiling Dr. Smith takes center stage next to the robot.
5: There! Well, I think I handled our little contretemps rather well, Even if I do say so myself. But Dr. Smith, the robot saved us. Robot indeed. I think even he would agree it was my resolute action that saved the day. Affirmative, dear Fred? Negative, Dr. Smith. Hold your tongue, you silly goose.
0: Your wish is my command. Oh, Capitan.
5: Raising
4: his right claw to salute, B-9 accidentally bumps into Smith's belly. Oh, watch what you're doing, you clumsy clump. He couldn't help himself, Dr. Smith. His coordination's still off. Right, Robot?
0: Affirmative, Will Robinson. Affirmative.
4: Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on
5: The Ghost Planet. Well, I gotta be brutally honest. I was worried going into this second season because as a kid, I remembered some ridiculous plots, absurd characters, nutty science, campy goofball behavior by Smith, and recycled props out the wazoo. But watching it again some 50 years later, I was surprised to see all those memories were actually accurate. (laughs) 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 The dumbed-down plots, the silly Smith bits. But the part that surprised me was that now, that I'm older and wiser, I'm enjoying it more. Sure, I still wish it was more serious, and I'm still pissed that the censors cut out all the best parts. But once you get used to the craziness of what remains... It's entertaining, and the more you watch it over and over, the more likable it becomes. It's kind of like the Monkees, the band. Remember those guys? Sure. Did you know that when they went on tour, their warm-up band was none other than the Jimi Hendrix experience. Wow. Yeah, the Jimi Hendrix. You know, Purple Haze, the guy that set his guitar on fire and was voted the greatest guitarist of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. But the crowds, they could care less. The teeny boppers, they wanted the cute little monkeys. Davey, Davey, Davey. Mm -hmm. Hendrix put up for it for six shows, but by the end of the seventh, he had had enough. He flipped off the audience and he stomped off the stage. Now, if I had been there, I probably would have yelled, you tell him, Jimmy, give it to the man. But being the cheap bastard that I am, I still would have stayed for the rest of the show. And the scary thing is, I would have enjoyed it. Because Mm -hmm. the monkeys, they were good. Not near as good as Hendrix or the Beatles, of course, but very entertaining to watch. They had wonderful chemistry, very likable characters, and they were funny. And if you watch their shows on TV today, the more you see them, the more you want to see them. Just like Lost in Space second season. But you got to get past that first viewing where everything is kind of weird before you kind of settle down and enjoy the craziness of it all. These last three episodes have been just like that. I wish they were more serious, like the opening act, the black guy, or in this case, the black and white season. But unfortunately, they aren't. Those better shows, they gave us the finger, and they stomped off the stage. Thank you very much, CBS (laughs) Censors. But but what remains is a different kind of fun, and I confess I'm enjoying it. Not two thumbs up, but, you know, still one, and at least it isn't the middle finger. So I'm happy with that. How about you? Oh,
4: I was happy with this one. I I did like it. And like I say, I'm I'm using a new standard for season two. Mm. If it entertained me, no matter how ridiculous some of the science or plot points were, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And this one did entertain me, just like the last one. I really enjoyed it. And there were a lot of things to like about it, too. I mean, we got some great special effect shots. Mm-hmm. We got some of that tracked Herman Stein and John Williams music from season one. Yeah. I thought the actors that did the voices were very good. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed the pop art designs of the scenery, the cyborgs and especially that cybernetic brain, as you mentioned.
5: If you, if you described this thing before they actually filmed it, I would have said, oh, this is sounding like the best episode ever. Mm-hmm. But then they start monkeying with it, they start cutting it down, they take out all the scary things. Oh mm. well. And it had the right writer, it had the right scenery, it had the right setup, had that cool cybernetic brain, the giant nose hairs, what's not to love?
4: <laughs> before we finish, let's talk about the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. With the Jupiter-2 still streaking through space,
5: up on the flight
4: deck, Dr. Smith stares out of the porthole as the sinister ghost planet recedes into the distance and speaks
5: for everyone. Farewell, malevolent planet. If our paths never cross again, it'll be much too soon.
4: But as our castaways discuss the menu for a well-deserved victory meal, their attention is diverted by a strange blip on the scanner Cutting to a close-up of the swirling moray patterns of the new
5: cosmic sensor scope, I gotta be honest, I don't see a thing. (laughs) Yes. Not only do I not see anything on it, I don't see how they could ever see anything on that thing.
4: (laughs) But apparently the men do. And the robot warns, it's no harmless space phenomena. It's a hyperatomic missile launched from the automated planet in protest of their leaving. Uh Uh-oh. Well, Major West does some fancy flying and luckily manages to dodge the missile before it destroys the ship. Unfortunately, the danger isn't over because the missile swings back around for another pass. And as B-9 warns, it is now locked on and cannot be evaded again. Uh Uh-oh. Everyone's terrified, especially Dr. Smith, who's nearing a state of hysteria thanks to the robot's relentless countdown to destruction. With the deadly missile gaining on them, Professor Robinson spots another nearby planet and orders Don to turn the ship directly toward it. And at full power, there's no time to strap in for the imminent impact with either the missile or the planet. But at the last second before the Jupiter-2 crashes, the professor orders Major West to execute one last daredevil pull-up maneuver. Miraculously, the Jupiter-2 misses the planet, and the missile misses the Jupiter, as it streaks headlong to the planet's surface below. Bracing for the coming shockwave, John then orders everyone to hang on. Cutting outside, the hyperatomic missile detonates, enveloping the Jupiter-2 in a giant mushroom cloud fireball. Oh dear, how can they possibly survive this flaming disaster? Before we can find out, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week, same time, same channel. (laughs) Wow, Kurt, we seem to be ending all these season two episodes with a bang. So why should this one be any different?
5: Oh, yeah, that, that explosion was so big, the mushroom cloud went all the way up into the vacuum of space. so <laughs> did the loud explosion. Wow. Uh.
4: Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 33 of Lost in Space titled Forbidden World. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.